Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. Today is unforgiveness when God's opinion is not enough, and it's part two. If there's any teaching that I would encourage you to go back and listen to, even if you were here last week, is to listen to it uh, again, it's last week's teaching. I think in 30 years or 30 plus years of very intense, intense and intentional teaching on forgiveness, uh, I, I think last week's teaching was probably the, the, the best one-stop shop on forgiveness that, that, I've, that I've been able to present or teach. If, in other words, typically I do it in about a seven or eight part series because it, it's just there. I believe that unforgiveness is the single greatest detriment to humanity as well as believers. I believe it hijacks us. Um, this week, questions that follow up about forgiveness that are part of that series, I have to at least spend this week, if not next week as well, going into some of those because there are specific aspects of it. Last week was incredible. Um, we each received a small piece of paper that says God's opinion is enough. And on that, we wrote the name of a thing or a person that we needed to forgive uh, most often people will write things, but when you get down to it, things happen at the hands of people. 90% of the time, 95% of the time, the issues we need to forgive are people. And people, we wrote names on papers and we dropped the cross right here and we just put a little simple paper shredder uh, here in the shadow, right in front of the cross because we wanted to say, make the statement, the cross is enough. Now, if you don't know what that statement means, you weren't here last week, I can't encourage you enough to go online uh, to, to listen to the podcast of, of part one of this teaching from last week. I want to pick up on two or three points, um, review and emphasis. In Matthew chapter 18, it starts at verse 21, and I'm just going to tell you the story quickly. There is this great king. The segment, by the way, is verses 21 through 35. Jesus is telling a story. Peter has asked a question. It is important, as I pointed out several weeks ago, to understand who is asking the question because it's very conspicuous, and Peter becomes a conspicuous ambassador unto forgiveness on a thousand levels. But he asks the question, Lord, if my brother uh, sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus answered and said, no, 70 times seven. And he was using exaggeration to make the point. He could have very well said a million times seven, but he said 70 times seven. And he says, now let me tell you a story about the kingdom of God. He said, there was this great king who had uh, servants. And servant number one comes in and he owes him this debt of about, in today's economy, about $8 billion. Now that servant fell down and it said prostrated himself. That's the Greek term for worship. And I think the poetic point there is huge. When he fell down and he prostrated himself, and I made this point and I can't make it enough, that there are so many of us that have a worship posture before God based on debt. He fell down and he prostrated himself. Lord, I owe you this a great amount of money, but if you'll give me the chance, I'll pay you. Just give me more time. And it said, and the great king moved with compassion, just totally forgave the debt. Now, this is important. Again, I cannot go into all the teaching. It would take too much time. But if you get to the end of the story, Jesus gives it away when he says, now, everything I've just told you is about how my father relates to you. 
Two things are true. The story is about God and how he relates to his followers, his servants. We are called servants of the Most High God. But there's another thing that is true. Jesus was alive and well telling this story prior to his death on the cross. But we, of course, now read this story on the other side of his death on the cross. And we understand that the death of Christ on the cross was the payment for all of our sin. A debt we could never pay in a million years. By any means, we could never pay it. And so this story, for those of us who read it now, on the backside of that story, we understand what's going on here. The great king, we come before him and we say, we have this immeasurable debt that cannot ever be paid. And he says, I've paid it. I've released you from it. Now the story goes on from there and says, servant number one went out and found servant number two who owed him in today's economy about $11,000. We can wrap our head around $11,000. How many know if somebody owed you $11,000? That's a lot of cash. I mean, that's a lot by any estimation right now. It would have been a lot to them. They can wrap their head around that. They can't wrap their head around $8 billion worth of debt. No way. No way they can get that. But they have been removed. This inestimable uh, amount of debt has just been wiped away. Again, we understand that has been done for us through the cross. So this story becomes about us. Those of us who have had debt wiped away. By the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet we go out and there are those who owe us debt. Who are indebted. Who have violated us. And we fail to forgive them and release them. The Bible says that that God hands us over or exposes us to the tormentor. You know something I didn't talk about um, last week. Is that in Ephesians chapter 6 it mentions the armor of God, and it says we're given a shield of faith. Now, I've taught, and watch the poetry here. I often wish I had a giant whiteboard I could write on and and build these little arrows and, and movements from one thing to another. Here at New Hope, and for 40 years of ministry, I have taught and believe passionately that faith is believing God is more than God can. We tend to hear faith messages, do you believe God can? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, now faith, now God is rewarded, but to please God, to have faith, excuse me, uh, in order to please God, you have to have faith. And faith is believing that God is, comma, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is. Now, that's consistent with how God discloses who he is. I've said this 50 times here in 16 years of, of sharing together. Then in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks God who he is, and he does not say, I am the I can. He says, I am the I am. The proper response in front of that burning bush, if God would have said back to Moses, he would have said, do you believe I am the I am? He would have said, yes, I believe you are. And if somebody would have been standing with him and said, you believe he is the I am? And you would have said, yes, I believe he is. So the I am, he is, you are. There are all constant phrases that suggest an essence of faith. If I believe God is above God can. Now, that's an important notion as we build this thread of understanding forgiveness. God just is. We have faith. The shield of faith is believing God is. How many know the only way we can begin to wrap around, wrap our head around this 
immense and immeasurable debt that's been paid. We can't wrap our head around it. We just got to back off and say, out of the incredible, immeasurable love, grace, mercy, all the things that we believe to be true of God, his holiness. He just is. In other words, God can't be spent. How can he forgive me, you, and you, and you, and you? Certainly, sometime that bank account has to run out. He has to go broke. But God, because God is, he does not go bankrupt of anything. How many are glad that you can call on the Lord your God at any moment and know that he will never respond to you and say, man, I'm just tapped out? Because he is the source of all that what? Is is it isness if we don't get that and that's at the that's at, that's at the core of understanding that we serve a holy god who alone can make us whole again now i want to just leap from there servant number one goes out to servant number two and he does the same thing he falls down on his face and he says hey give me some time and he says no now i didn't build enough of a point i can't spend much time here But we have to get this point. Those of us who would walk in unforgiveness, and that is, watch this. If servant number one would have walked out and said, I can't wrap my head around this debt, but I'm going to accept his opinion, the king's opinion, on the quality and substance of my life above everything else. If he would have walked out, under the opinion of the king that you have been forgiven, you are suddenly have a wealth that you can give away that you didn't have five minutes ago. When servant number two came and fell on his feet, he, that servant would have fallen down and he would, and that servant would have said, listen, I, I'm falling down here and, and I'm in debt to you. And he would have instantly reached down and said, dude, you have no idea what just happened to me. Uh, just please, come on, get up. Can I just tell you what the king said? I just came out from the king, and the king said, I've wiped away $8 billion of debt. Look, I know $11,000 seems like a lot to us, but listen, just please get up. What would have happened? Servant number one would have been walking under the opinion of the king rather than what? He entered into the spirit of the opinion of servant number two. I didn't make that point enough. Unforgiving people live by the influence of the next opinion that comes. I want you to hear that. Unforgiving people live dictated to by the force of the next opinion that comes at you. I really need to do a whole sermon just on unpacking that. By the next opinion that comes at you. Opinion of brokenness, opinion of less than, opinion whatever. Good, bad, but it doesn't last. Only one opinion prevails, and that's the opinion of the king. That's the word of God. That's why we have to know the word of God. Unforgiving people don't live, listen to me. They don't live primarily under the influence of the opinion of the king. What does that mean? The word of God. We look for every opinion and every reflection around us to inform us of what we're worth. And we tend to uh, navigate to that lowest common denominator. Boy, a thousand things can be said about that. But I want to leap on to some other things, some questions I had this week. Now, we determine the problem with that is we make the declaration to the king, the cross isn't enough. And he says, if the cross isn't enough, I, I, there's just nothing I can do. Now, back to the shield of faith. If I don't believe God is enough, see, the shield of faith is the isness of God. 
When I believe God's enough, if you read Ephesians 6, it says it quenches the fiery darts of the evil one. Notice the language of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 says he turned us over to the tormentor. At the end of the age, there is this place called hell that is forever free from the opinion of God, and it's a place of eternal fire and torment. The poetic language is strangely a thread of continuity here. And here's my point, beloved. Unforgiving people don't have the shield of faith. Unforgiving people don't say God is enough. Because if God is enough, I've got something that can shield the, my, myself from the fiery darts of the evil one. But I'm, I'm, it's a, I'm, we are open to every little stinging thought, action of hell against us that seems to torment us from day to day to day to day. All right? I really have to stop. Today I want to deal with two things. Number one, what steps can I take to implement this? Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to move quickly. Verses 23 and 24. It says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar... And remember, your brother has something against you. Now notice, it's not just you have something against them, but they have something against you. Either way, Matthew 18 flips the narrative, by the way. It talks about having, you see your brother in sin. But if you have something against your brother, your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Everybody say that word, go. Okay, we have one command, and go, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Last week we came down, and I was just overwhelmed, honestly, at the, at the response. I don't know, 75 or 80% of us got up and walked down here, and just some of the things I saw on the faces of people, and of course I can't see hearts, but just what I saw on the faces was overwhelming. The beginning to break that chain, okay? Everyone pay, I'm going to read you two verses of scripture. I want to warn you in advance, I don't want them to become theological tools of legalism that we use to beat one another or beat ourselves. I want them to become tools of liberty, okay? Two verses of scripture. First John, by the way, I haven't forgotten go, we're coming back to go, all right? First John chapter one, verse nine. Anybody here remember what confess means? See, if mercy... Is God refusing to accept any opinion of me above his opinion of me? See, that's that force that's always out there. It's pushing back against things we face every day, every other opinion coming at us. There's that force of God, his opinion pushing against it. And at any moment, we can reach out and access that. How? By confession. Homologeo means the point at which it means to say the same thing as. I, I'm, I'm going to say this again and again until it's burnt on our minds, if not written on our hearts. That it's to say the same thing as. So what is that? That's when I accept God's opinion above my opinion of me and my life. That's confession. Now watch this. If we confess, there's the word. If I accept God's opinion of my identity, that word uh, sin means finding, accepting any opinion of, or of my identity other than God's, okay? That's what sin is. Stick that in your working definition. Watch. If we accept God's opinion above my opinion and the place that I look for opinions to give me identity, that's what those first five words mean. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many are thankful for that? Yes. 
How many are thankful that last week as you came and you forgave others, there was just this new opportunity for forgiveness to flow right to you in Jesus' name? We responded to the word of God and that begins to happen. So here's principle number one. If I confess my sins to God, he cleanses me and he forgives me. How many are thankful that we are cleansed and forgiven? Just shout amen. Okay? If I confess my sins to God, I am cleansed and forgiven. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins, same two words. Confess God's opinion above your opinion of the other places you found an opinion of your identity. Confess your sins, watch, to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And here comes that verse, the effectual Uh, I'm going to say King James here. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Principle number one. If I confess my sins to God, he cleanses me and he forgives me. How many thank God you're cleansed and forgiven? Amen. Amen. If I confess my sins one to another, I'm healed. So what does that mean about forgiveness? Go. Go. At some point. You're going to have to write that email, make that phone call, send that text message, and say to that person, listen, you may have forgotten all about this 35 years ago. By the way, I found, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, actually, I I was just curious. And I went and looked up the name of the Cub Scout leader that molested me when I was nine years old. And he is on the... Um, because he molested several children. He has been released from prison. I have found generally where he lives, and somewhere or another, I'm going to find out a way of getting in touch with him. Because although I went through this process on my own, when the judge asked me to write a sentencing suggestion for sentence, um, uh, when was that, 1987, 86 or 87, And I remember just sitting in my little office in the basement of a church where I was serving as a a student ministries pastor at the time and just with tears running down my face saying, I thank God I've been forgiven. Well, Father, I, I just, I want forgiveness. But see, there come some questions. Does forgiveness license people to hurt other people? And I don't even have time to address that. It's done in the forgiveness teaching. And I may have to go ahead and finish this series, who knows. But do I trust again? That person that's hurt me again and again and again, Pastor, are you telling me to, to just for, for, forgive them? Yes. Are you telling me just to trust them and give them that access? No. That's stewardship. And if you do, that's stupidity. It's, it's just, you don't. You're giving person, a person access that they don't have the level of stewardship, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Read the story of stewardship where Jesus handed out talents and came back. And he says, the person that doesn't handle it properly, give it back. I'm taking it back. See, scripture tells us about this stuff. So no, you don't just run out and say, please, please hit me again and again and again. No, you don't do that. Okay, everybody got that? That's not what Christ is advocating. That's not what scripture teaches. But somehow... In the next weeks and months, I'm going to find a way of reaching out and contacting him and saying, hey, my name is so-and-so, and I just want you to know that many, many years ago, I forgave you and released you, and I pray that you would come to know the forgiveness and the release of the Savior to you. I'm going to do that. And if at all, if in any way that it can happen, 
I want to see him face to face. You say, dude, you're really going to do that? Yeah, I am. I am. Because I believe there's going to be something for him and even a next level of spiritual release for me. I want that. I can't wait for that. I'm excited about that. I'll let you know when it happens, all right? Now, I didn't intend to say that. Um, the, uh, but the go. Okay, so some questions arise. Well, what do I do if that person, you know, they've died? It's a parent, a grandparent, or somebody. That's all right. Write it out. Confess it to someone else who knows that person. Put it in the hands of another person to make binding the promises of God. There's a lot more teaching that goes along with, why would I want to tell Drew? Why would I want to confess to Drew anything? I, be, I believe it sort of touches back on the where two or three are gathered in my name. There's this, there, there's this judicial force from the heavenlies. I, I believe I can build a strong case for it. But principle number one, next steps for each of us here. Coming down here and shredding that under the shadow of the cross, God says, great, you're released, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. Now I want you to be healed. How do I get that healing? I take it from vertical and I release it horizontally. I find someone to stand with me. It's right there in Scripture. Dance with it whether you want to or not, okay? Look back at the person again and say, it's another time. He wasn't talking to me, but I know he's talking to you. Go ahead and tell him that right now, okay? How do I know when I've truly forgiven? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. <clears throat> Anybody recognize this verse? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I'll wait for it to pop up there. Pray then in this way. We just said this. Our Father... Who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Did a whole series on this here not long after I came. It's been a decade or more since I did the series on the Lord's Prayer. There's several hanging out there I want to do. I want to do one on the Ten Commandments because I believe the Ten Commandments are a handbook about worship. They're not there to dictate and pound us. The, 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 they are there to teach us where we find our worth. They're warnings against all the wrong places that we find our worth. I want to do a series on the Beatitudes again. I love that. My, my heart's just being rocked as I'm hanging out in the Sermon on the Mount these days. But look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Here it comes. Forgive us our debts as we ha also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses, one translation says, as those who have for trespassed against us done us wrong. Now, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want you to look at the phrase that follows, and I don't have much time to build a case for this, but it says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. By the way, the verse I didn't include in Matthew, it goes on to say, the very next verse says, and if you don't forgive, I, I can't forgive or I can't release you. This morning I had a pastor call me early and uh, he had heard this and he said, I need you to help me with exactly what that means. I want to say again, I don't believe a believer who fails to forgive that either one of the references, either here in Matthew 6 or in Matthew 18, when it says you'll be turned over to the tormentors, or if you don't forgive, I can't forgive, I do not believe that is talking about eternal torment, no, nor do the majority of the commentators. But it does, as the teaching, listen, I took the time last week to tell you that there is, a, there is an eternal place of torment called hell that is free from the force of mercy, but there is a temporal place of torment 
that is free from the place of uh, force, uh, mercy. How many know why a person will ultimately go to hell? They didn't accept the forgiveness of the death of cross of Christ. That's it. Okay? It results in an eternal place of being separated from the force of God's mercy. In like fashion, there are those of us who may accept Christ as our Savior. We've taken care of the eternal place. But he says, if you live right now in an unforgiving fashion, if you don't extend the forgiveness you've received, you live in a temporal, right now in this life, place of torment, that shield of faith. And <clears throat> i got to say this, what I said to the young pastor this morning. I said, it's broken my heart that I have mo- known more pastors that, that have been in ministry decades who carry hurt and pain that have happened to them in church by people they've ministered to, things said, things done. Pastoral ministry is a fishbowl. You live your life, people say things, they do, they comment on everything in the world from your hair or lack of it and uh, uh, to the way you dress, you look, the thing, just anything. I'm, anything in the world. You live in a fishbowl and there's constantly these darts and I've told pastors again and again and again, you really have to have thick skin and a soft heart and that pastoral life, it's a tough thing to maintain those two. I'm going to tell just another brief story I've never shared publicly. About a decade ago, I was passionately involved in a, in a thing with a larger denomination. I was writing a great deal online for some change points that I felt needed to happen getting a lot of pushback in certain quadrants. But as I began to write, there were people that sort of came in out of the tall grass that had real issues with the denomination. They were bitter and hurt. And some of them were even previous denominational leaders at the highest level that otherwise wouldn't have contacted me. They reached out to me and I was just thought, wow, this person's reaching out to me, only to find out there was this overflowing fountain of vitriol and hurt and pain and said, well, if you're looking for information, I can give you information that will do da-da-da-da-da-da. And I said, whoa, whoa, you've totally misunderstood what I'm, what I'm after here. I'm not after anybody. I don't have an agenda. I don't want to get anybody. I want us to pursue righteousness together. You let me, and, and I said to this person who was very much an elder in the body to me, I said, listen, you, you really need to get with God. I probably could have approached it a little more graciously, but it just sort of came out of my mouth. And I said, and this wasn't a conversation that happened once. Because they suppose if you're taking a stand that you are against what theirs against. Do you, you know what happens if you stand in the middle of something? Each person on the other side supposes that you're on the opposite side. And so you get attacked from both sides. Well, you're on with them because you're not all the way over here with me. No, I'm not. Okay, enough about that. But you've been there. You, you get that. But I want to tell you that you will, find, uh, you will find people navigate to you and gravitate to you. Beware. And can I just tell you, go ahead and tell you this as well, that if a whole lot of negative, unforgiving people gravitate to you, that may not be because of righteousness. That may be because of birds of a feather, all right? So just, uh, hey, here's your sign, all right? Now, uh, where are we? Now, give us this day, okay, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. <clears throat> I have supposed now for many years that these words follow on purpose. The word lead us not to temptation, by the way, how many know where unforgiveness is from? It's from the evil one. All right. There's a whole separate teaching on that, building a case for that. 
But there are two phrases that are happening here. It says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The, the Greek term, aispero here, it, it's a negated thing. Do not lead us into something. I love the implication. If I were to say to you, um, uh, okay, there is a, there, there's a, uh, a back hallway there with two doors on it that goes into the back part of, of it. And I were to say to you, do not lead me in, into that. Ever, ever, I don't ever want to go back there. Well, okay, well, but there's doors there. I, I don't care. Slam the door shut, weld them shut. I don't ever want to go there. Shut the door. The word ice pharaoh does not mean close the door in a literal translation, but the implication of I don't want to go into that room results in close the door, slam the door. Test number one. If you find yourself frequently wanting to visit the room again, chances are. See, what follows that? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. See, here's my supposition. Well, how do we do that? Number one, slam the door and ask for God's help. Did you see what happened there? Lord, I, I want to release those trespasses because I always want to... I always want to feel the flow of forgiveness constantly releasing me unto new venues of grace and mercy. I want that. So here's the next words out of my mouth. There's a room that I'm tempted to go back to, a violation where that trespass and the whole inequity of it. But Father, don't leave me there. Matter of fact, I need your assistance in making sure I don't go there. As a matter of fact, Father, just close that door, slam it, weld it shut. I don't ever want to visit the room again. If you find yourself wanting to visit the room, chances are you need to talk to God about forgiveness some more. And do what? Ask his help. He said, Lord, lead us not. Everybody got that? Okay. Look at the person next to you and say, now I know he's talking to you. Go ahead and tell him that. Second point here. It says, and deliver us from evil. There's a word for deliverance that's also translated salvation. And it's not this word. It's a word from which we get soteriology, which is a theological word for salvation. That's not this word. This word, ruamai, one lexical reference I reread this morning, it does mean to rescue from, and look at the language. It does say deliver us from evil. But this word, ruamai, means to drag across the ground, and it means to draw to oneself. I'll never forget the first time 25 years ago I read that in the shadow of what this means right here. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of an obtuse Greek term, by the way. But it means to drag across the ground and to draw to oneself. Now, what can that possibly mean? Uh, let me borrow a couple of people. Okay, Drew, you always sit on the front row. I'm sorry, son. And you're big enough where everybody can see you. I need you to stand right about here. Uh, yes, sir, you already got it. Stand right there in that light. That'll work. We're standing right there. Now, uh, Let's see, I make you the bad guy all the time. <laughs> I'll make Jeremy the bad guy today. Jeremy's the guy that's, 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 that's hurt me, okay? He's done me wrong at some point. And it's just, it's whatever happened, it was bad. Now, right here, you get to be God today. Good news for you, okay? So you have come to rescue me, deliver me from, I want to go, may want to go back to that room, but no, Lord, help me. How does he help me? Come here and grab me by the arm. Here's how God's willing to help. Lord, I'm wanting, 
I want to go. Now you're big enough to pull me, so pull me. Okay, good. I, I, but I, I want to go back there. Drag across the ground. See, we ask him, Father, close the door on that. I don't want to go back there. And if necessary, drag me kicking and screaming away from anybody getting the intensity of that prayer. Drag me kicking and screaming. But see, it doesn't mean to drag across the ground. Grab me, son. But sooner or later, that dragging will surrender where I'll say, it means to draw to oneself. To where as a loving father, I say, Father, I'm being drawn to him. And his embrace. Now watch. Stay right here. Sooner or later. Watch your language. Watch the reference. How do we talk about it? Tom, how are you dealing with that thing? Well, I'm putting it behind me. Well, how are you doing with that transgression? Boy, that was bad, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I'm getting past it. Problem is, whenever we say that language, that is still the point of reference. How are you dealing with it? I'm putting it behind me. How you doing? Well, I'm getting past it. I'm moving farther away. But what happens when I ask God, drag me? Because he's not rescuing me from that. He's rescuing me to himself. Go ahead. No, No, wait, I'll say it again. Because the reason we clap our hands is not to applaud the old fat white guy up front. The reason we clap our hands is to clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Now, I'm going to say it again. I'll give you another chance. Because there's just a few here right now that some light went off in your face, and it's not just enough for you to do that. Some of you need to stand up, clap your hands, and say, well, or hallelujah, or stand up and point at the person next to you and say, now I know he's talking to you. I'm joking. Don't do that one. But I want to tell you, there will come a point When the dragger across the grounder becomes not the dragging me across the ground, where I don't say, I'm putting it behind me, I'm getting past it, comes the point when you get asked the question, how are you doing with that? Girl, what are you talking about? That, listen, I serve a God who came after me, rescued me, drugged me away, slammed the door shut, said, I'm going to keep you out of that room. He put his arms around me. He has embraced me. And that is not even a point of reference to me anymore. Now, clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Preacher's done. Thank you, guys. Genesis 19, verse 17. It's a story of Lot's wife. Now, for those of you who have a recollection, Jeremy was there. Drew was here. That was the transgression. This is God, my rescuer. There's another poetic note. Look look this way. Do you have that verse of Scripture, um, Amanda, or did I send it to you? I don't know if I did. It's the story of Abraham and Lot. Lot and his family are called to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a little verse of scripture I want to extract from that. I'm pretty sure it's Genesis 19. If I sent you the wrong verse, then forget it. But verse 17, and it says, when they had brought them, let's see, outside, the, the angel said, uh, escape 
for you do not and do not look behind you. Escape for your life and do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere here. So they begin to leave. Lot's wife did not want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's an entirely other story. I just want to grab one thing. Watch verse 26. But as she was going from behind him, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That's one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament. Now, I love unpacking all of the, just the, the neat little nuances of that, but I, I don't have time. I want to get this point. Okay, everyone look. I can keep making my point of reference back here. Or I can finally give in to the loving father that came to the planet, took on flesh and said, I'm going to drag you away from that. I'm going to slam the door shut. I don't want you to think about that. When it comes, you just turn to me and say, Father, please help me with that. I need that door to stay shut. I don't want to go back there in my mind and my thoughts. That's not who I am. I want to hear your opinion. He says, come here, let me just drag you to myself and tell you my opinion one more time. Or you can do this. Here's the principle, I I use that Genesis passage to teach on leadership, that if we go forward constantly looking back, we are guaranteed to become a monument unto nothing in a wilderness of nowhere. That's what unforgiveness does. We become a monument unto nothing, and the destination that God would otherwise have for us in our life constantly stays out there, and it's never reachable. We're miserable in our homes and our marriages. Last week was a journey to the altar. This week is not the journey to the altar. The altar's in your own heart. Because right now, with your heads up and your eyes open, Father, there are those of us here who you're speaking to our heart. Your closing words from Matthew 18 says, you'll be tormented if you do not forgive one another from your heart. Today we're those redeemed who have stood here and we've confessed the name of the Lord and we have been forgiven and we've been cleansed. Last week we were forgiven of that. But this week, Father, we pledge to take it to a new step of judicial strength and action. That we're going to go to that person and if we can't go to that person, we're going to at least go to another person and say, here's the name, here's the thing. I need you to agree with me. Listen, everyone look at me. You can't imagine the stories I've heard. You can't imagine the stories I've heard of a young lady named Judy. 30 years ago, she gave me the permission to use her name and her story. At the time, her daughter was six or eight years old. She was a single mom. Judy had grown up in a home where her mother had had six or eight husbands, if you will. Her mom, very broken person, would give Judy to the next husband if that person wanted her. Two or three different stepdads molested her from the time she was like 10 until she was 18. She sat in my office weeping. Brenda and I were sitting with her. And she said, I, 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 I just want justice. I just want the pain to go away. I just want that. And by the way, she did embrace forgiveness, powerful deliverance. The only person that I've ever prayed with or for that we had clinical evidence of HIV and she was healed of AIDS. I'm mean, just an amazing, yeah, an amazing story. And I prayed for lots of people, but that one, I mean, just, oh my goodness gracious. Now, the reason I'm saying that is in this room are immeasurable story, stories of immeasurable pain. 
you have no, I know some of them. And just thinking of them and the precious people, the story behind those faces, I'll never forget a young lady here telling me her story. And I'm going, that can't be the story behind that face and that voice and that song. There's no way that story can be back there. See, we look at one another and we think, well, they're not them. You have no idea what pain and injustice you're standing next to. You have no idea what transgression and hurt and wrong you're standing 20 inches away from. No idea. I don't take this lightly when I say to you, beloved, oh, just go to him. It's no big deal. No, the thought of that when I mentioned it has caused an earthquake in your soul. I get that. I get that. I'm 61 years old. I think of pretty sound constitution. You may have a different opinion. But the thought of meeting with that Cub Scout leader, and he's 84, 3, 4 years years old. But the thoughts of that still is a twinge here. I have no doubt that in that moment that I will walk in full of the Spirit of God and speak to him out of mercy and grace despite whatever he may or may not say back. By the way, can I give you one big warning? Some of you here today, somebody here is going to risk to send that text message or that email, and that person's going to respond back with these words. Watch. I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's the opportunity for the adversary just to shove that knife in. Do not fall prey to that. Come back here, drag her across her. Okay? At that point, that person sends that message back. Come here so the camera can pick you up. That person sends the message back. You call on him and you say, drag me, pull me. And he will. He is an ever-present help in our time of need. There'll never be a moment when you say, Father, I need you right now. Kick that door shut. Matter of fact, there's a whole story about that in Revelation 3. He says, I do close doors. And when I close them, nobody will open them again. I should have remembered that. But that is the God we serve. And he says, and in that same story, he says, I'm dragging you into my presence and closing the door behind you. I like that. Father, I have no idea the stories that stand in this room. I have no idea the disruption and the quaking of the soul that when I even suggested reaching out to that transgressor, it's like, no, no, there's just no way. It may not happen on September 9th, but Father, you're going to keep that little voice of mercy. I have a bigger opinion of you than you do of your fear. I have a bigger opinion of your strength than you do of your fear. I have a bigger opinion of the power in you than you do of your fear. See, that very next line says, well, I don't know that I can do that. And that's why the prayer says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And you're going to give it to me. Because those are words that he uses about stuff he's put in us. I pray for your people today, Father. Everybody lift up holy hands with me. We make binding the promises of God today. And in the days ahead, there are people here that are going to need your strength to drag them across the ground to the next step, to have the courage. There's some who will dare to do this to just a, a very sacred family member, and they're going to reject them. They're going to say, no, that can't, that, that never happened, and you're making this up. And why are you doing this? Father, I've heard the stories. But Father, they need the freedom. I pray that you give them the grace to smile right back and say, it makes no difference. Your forgiveness doesn't base, isn't based on your acceptance. I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. And that's it. That's the end of the discussion in Jesus' name. I love you and praise you. Strengthen your people, Father. Strengthen them. 
close the door behind them. Drag them to yourself. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And it's that kingdom and power and glory that lives in us. So be it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's clap our hands and shout unto God right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.